My conversation today is with author, teacher, and director of studies for the Institute for Hermetic Studies, Mark Stavish. Mark is one of the first names students typically encounter upon their approach to the occult and the Western esoteric traditions, and that's for good reason. He is the author of 26 books published in seven languages worldwide, and is a recurring personality in the genres of the paranormal and esoteric within mainstream media. I have personally been learning from Mark's work since the very beginnings of my journey, and am privileged to be co-teaching with, as well as continuing to learn from him. Mark's knowledge is voluminous. His understanding and insight extend even further. His central focus ever fixed upon the grand scheme of human awakening, and that's what I love most about him. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. So right out of the gate, I guess I had a hard time like figuring out where I should start in terms of, you know, topics. Uh, you're one of the few people I feel that I can talk to about virtually any subject, you know, regarding the occult. And But I guess uh, I'd start out by saying that you're a fairly public person. I'd say one of the more well-known within communities concerned with things like Western esoteric traditions, et cetera. I know that you also incorporate Eastern philosophy into a lot of what you do. Uh, but what I don't know about you fully is the extent of your esoteric background. And that that's not to imply, you know, uh, not in the sense of credentials, because your work certainly speaks for itself. But backstory is kind of interesting. Uh, so I was wondering if it was like, Amorc or Paracelsus Research Society that you sort of came up in, or is there another lineage you were also trained in that you're perhaps willing to talk about? Well, my, my great uncle was involved in all of these uh, esoteric movements of the early 20th century. And of course, his father was a uh, a brawler, but not just your you know run of the mill brawler. He was um, you know more of a hexenmeister, and like here's the. Uh, I mean, that's, if you can see it. Can you oh, see Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that light, when you tilt it back. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I have other things around here, too. How old is that? Well, probably 100, 110, 120 years old. Wow. I have his sister's notebooks. I have his notebooks right here at my feet. You know, so, uh, you know, that's, um, I've talked about that. I wrote about that in our monograph, uh, uh, what was it, Pietism, Power, and the Magical Revival, I think it was called. So there's some historical background in there. Are we, you know, can you want me to get a copy of it? I can show you. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, sure. yeah. Ah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the the front part is more or less biographical, but it, it it links it into the broader magical and esoteric milieu of the of Eastern Pennsylvania in, in the last two hundred years. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I know um, some of the things that you and I have kind of spoken about before. Topically, is is the German folk traditions, particularly those established in in the area in which you live, um, and um, you know, I'm I'm assuming that that's part of your 
you know, you actively practice some of that stuff. Um, and uh, it was really interesting because at the conference this year, there was uh, a speaker on powwow and I had never really dipped my toe into it. I had never, never really bent my ear. And I found it particularly as a Christian, I, I found it uh, extremely interesting also as a, as a Catholic and you know, it can, we can get a little superstitious at times. So it's a little, it's, that was right <laughs> up my alley. <laughs> well, I think that little bit of superstition is what keeps it interesting. Um, You know, when, when we look at magic and we look at all of this, uh, it really is how does it engage the imagination? And we look at imagination as something, generally speaking, disconnected from reality. That is such as uh, a fantasy or a dream state. Or <clears throat> if it is engaged towards some kind of visible tangible creation we see it as inspiration or genius so if your imagination allows you to create a song that's nice as long as you don't want to become a musician and should you want to become a musician and your imagination allows you to create enough songs to record an album that's nice as long as you don't well, as they always say, as long as you have a backup plan. But should your imagination be strong enough where it allows you to write enough songs and to write enough albums and to go on tour and have a certain amount of fame, then it's, well, that's okay, as long as you have a plan for when it runs out. You know, it's going to be all a matter of degrees until you're finally famous enough. And then rich enough, because it's not going to just be famous enough, you have to be rich enough too. So it's the same with being a writer. I joke with my musician friends about, you know, sort of the same thing. It's how many books have you written? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. matter. It's how much did you make off them? Yeah. 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 As, but, a musician, as a musician, if we're going albums to books, uh, I mean, it's fractions of pennies typically per stream download. Right. And, and then we joke about the merchandise. And I've talked about this openly. I mean, I, the listeners should realize that I've spoken openly about the problems involved in esotericism and, uh, the false and naive notions that are out there and, and that are pro propagated about how things work. Um, they have naive notions about the past, as I said in an interview last night. Look, you know, 20% of the population in Tibet was in the Lamas, in, in, in the lamaseries. Uh, they were in the monasteries. They weren't all practicing. You know, they were, they were uh, bureaucratic functionaries for the state. You know, in the, the monastic traditions in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, you know, they were large landholding entities that had a relationship with their communities, and that's what allowed many things to happen. So we have some very naive notions about spirituality and its relationship to uh, the physical world and, and these things. Yeah. But um, that said, um, wherever i was going with that uh the imagination then is really the gateway to the invisible mm -hmm. and from that gateway we can then receive again as we call it inspiration but also insight and profound illumination so when we look at the renaissance and as ionis coliano pointed out and, and i i found this quite fascinating i really did being brought up in a, in a 
Protestant environment in, in a sea of Catholicism, uh, that the Protestant Reformation really was the death of the imagination. Hmm. And that, you know, you're talking about superstition, that what is the appeal of Catholicism is its artistic culture. And we see within Western esotericism for the last 100, 120 years or so, but even continuing, even to this day, a strong appeal, particularly among Martinists, for Eastern Orthodoxy. And the reason Orthodoxy is so popular is because it has a strong artistic expression in the writing of icons. And as your listeners will know, it's you write an icon, you don't paint one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's particular processes you do, very similar to Tibetan tankas. And of course, the rich mystical tradition through the, the prayer of the heart, the prayer of Jesus, uh, the way of the pilgrim, and the rich liturgical uh, traditions, uh, vocal tradition. So you have, uh, you know, mantra, yantra, and tantra wrapped up in Eastern Orthodoxy. So uh, within that regards, we, we see why it, it has such an appeal to many Western esotericists. Yeah, I, um, I, my, my father and uh, that side of the family is all Greek Orthodox. So I've, I've, uh, I've baptized f- f- a few of my cousins, et cetera, and things like this. And uh, the thing, the thing that really struck me about uh, Orthodox rites, Greek Orthodox rites, is how how inherently magical they are. Um, you know, the, the Eucharistic mass of, of the Catholic church is obviously, um, a form of, of, you know, alchemical ritual. Uh, and, but the, the other sacraments are, are not as dramatic as let's say, not even a baptism, right. Is as dramatic as like a, um, an Orthodox, right. I remember, uh, being, <clears throat> you know, the, the sponsor, the Godfather to one of my cousins. And it's, it's full of all these visceral acts of, of, uh, of rejection of, of, of Satan. You have to spit on the ground like three times. (laughs) So it's, and, and, and the, you know, the officiating priest is like this long gray beard bearded wizard and he's wearing a cassock and he's going back and forth in and out of this tabernacle. He just disappears periodically, comes back sweating. So it's, it, to me, it was, it's, it was very much, um, intensely ritualistic and that that also draws me to to orthodoxy however they you know they uh there are certain stances at least in the 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 parishes the churches that i've spoken to that don't allow uh it's it's um parishioners to be uh masons or anything like that and and do the things that we do so unfortunately i've had to i've had to go the uh the other way but i i'm kind of that is something that I wanted to to talk about. I'm sure that you've talked about it, uh, you know, plenty of times, but I'm a little curmudgeonly as, as uh, regards to my view on, on, you know, the modern iterations of, of uh, spirituality, or I should say pseudo spirituality, um, uh, you know, pal, uh, I would say palliative based commercialized spirituality. I, sometimes I like to sort of half half joke and say that the library of Alexandria is, is burning again, (laughs) but there's, 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 I think there's a little kernel of truth in that. And 
I feel like from what I've seen over the past 20 years of research and 10 years of initiation, et cetera, it's like many of like the occult practices and philosophies are sort of like having their carcasses picked at the moment by people whose depth of understanding is about as deep as my coffee mug here. Uh, what do you see to be the one of the biggest harms or potential pitfalls in contemporary occultism like right now? Well, there are several, and and I think you know, going back to your statement about orthodoxy, you know, the the rite of baptism, and I remember seeing it, is uh, essentially a minor exorcism, and only recently has that notion of dealing with, I don't want to say evil, but we'll say questionable forces been reintroduced into esotericism. Uh, there's kind of been there in a general way, but there's also been over the last 30, 40 years, well, longer even, but really in the last 20, an extremely popular notion of, you know, the trafficking of spirits. And it's funny because all these folks are obsessed with Goetia and the lesser and the greater keys of Solomon and all of this. And, and that was something that would have been that was rejected by the the Renaissance Magi. They they looked down upon it. And it's also interesting because that those texts probably arose within the clerical underground of the medieval period and into the Renaissance. So we, we owe the Catholic Church the, the very thing many people who practice those rites reject for those practices now here's the irony too and and how do you work this because it's a contradiction i mean i from an outsider looking at it i see it as ironic but as a practitioner or even a, a therapeutic view it's a contradiction and therefore it's a problem if you're rejecting the power of the church and essentially the egregore of the church fine but those texts rely very heavily on it according to their authors so if you don't really believe in God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or some variation of that, how are you going to use those words in the, in the, the, the practice? So, of course, we see people say, well, I don't. I'm going to change them. Yeah. Well, at that point, that's fine. But then just do something completely different. So, you know, that's kind of an example of that picking and then how that that tearing at the, the 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 fabric becomes a big tear from a, a small thread to a big tear the other and what goes with that is also the failure to wrap our heads around the importance of virtues you know virtue is seen as just kind of a, a vague moralizing uh while do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law it becomes the mantra of choice and I remember when I was taught that, it was said to me very clearly, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, love is the law. Meaning, do whatever you want, but take full responsibility for it. You know, take respon you have to take responsibility for what you do. And that's where the love part comes in, that the, 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 the generation of compassion. And compassion is a poor word. Uh, but 
and love is a poor word too. We we seem to uh, have failed to really understand the, the different types of love. Mm-hmm. Whereas within Greek, what are there? Are there four words for love? Yeah, I remember. Like, the, yeah, yeah, agape, yeah. and yeah. So you have the fraternal love, you have romantic love, you have uh, a kind of devotional love, and you have just a general love of, of others. You know, so we understand the subtlety of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And within that framework, that's why I wrote the monograph 20 years ago, Wisdom's Bliss, Compassion in Western Esotericism, because this was completely lacking, because we see so many folks who are pillory to the pillar of severity. Mm. I mean, they have taken chains, like in the devil card, and chained themselves to the pillar of severity. And then they pride themselves on their on, on something, you know, what, what great ritual magicians they are, which may or may not be true because there seems to be little movement in integrating the other aspects of what that path or paths may, may include. And the reason for that is really very simple. As you'd asked earlier, what are the different traditions that I have? And I was very fortunate enough to have an environment where this was an active living tradition, but it was wrapped within the framework of classical mysticism and religion so when we take esotericism and we divorce it from its culture and then we divorce it from its broader cultural framework and and that being religion as well the symbolism becomes very difficult to utilize i mean how do we talk about these masonic questions these rosicrucian questions all these things when people increasingly don't even have basic Sunday school instruction, it becomes very, very hard. And people will say, well, you know, things are changing. Yes, they are, but you don't understand. As someone who's trying to teach you, changing is also, we run the risk of a total rupture with the past. Not just a modification, but a total rupture in which you start over from the beginning. And what we see then is the bifurcation. And I've talked about this at length with with different folks in some interviews with David Metcalf and others. The bifurcation means you have a large group of people who go off and do their vision of spirituality, which can often be, and it's not always terrible. It really isn't. I think people can often be too harsh on it because it's not as, sophisticated as they think it should or ought to be they, they do too much moralizing on it but there's a lot of stuff in there that's just a complete distraction from the path and what i mean by that is and those destruction distractions and when i use the word destructions they are these distractions are a destruction as well because they keep us from understanding the fundamental question of what does this do for me when I'm alive, and what will this do for me when I'm dead? How does this work in the here, and how will this work in the hereafter? Because all of the classical initiatic systems are concerned with that fundamental question. So we have a lot of systems that and ideas that help us in the here, and that's fine. But I don't see a lot of it in a lot of these systems as being very useful in the hereafter. And I've talked to people at length about them. I've read about them. People send me their private secret lessons and I'll go through these things. You know, so it's not as if I I don't know what's out there. 
And that's why we brought forward, you know, in the Institute for Medic Studies, place a lot of emphasis on lucid dreaming, the body of light, you know, the survival of consciousness, this continuity of interior initiation. That that's really what we're we're focusing on with folks. So um, that's part of it. And I think another part of it is that as much as Western esotericists will talk about cycles, they don't really grasp them. And I will say that the modern students that we've seen, and I mentioned this at the conference to you and a few others, because some folks were there who I've known for a while, as you know, came came out of the woodwork to visit us for our 25th anniversary. You know, when we speak to each other in private, we recognize that we're doing remedial work with people compared to what we were doing 20 and 30 years ago. So more is available now than ever before. And some really good stuff, let's be honest. But people are, they're drowning, not only in too much information, because they don't know what to do with it. Right. And that's where having teachers come in and, and people you can trust. And that's the other part of, of it. This notion that you can do this yourself is interesting because I had one fellow say, well, we don't know who to trust. Okay, well, if you don't know which teachers to trust, then how are you going to know which books to trust? So if you can't make up your mind about the person in front of you or who you're having a Zoom discussion with, who you can interact with in real time, then instead you're going to rely on your fantasy vision about an author who's long dead. That's an amazing point. <laughs> it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. I, and, and that the, what I'm finding is that the volume of information that becomes, that is available constantly is changing, changing our consciousness to a degree. It's, it's, it's sort of training, training, training us in a, a different method of uh, a different perceptive system or, or filter. And that, that's what I'm finding um, from a lot of uh, younger, you know, students and temple mates and things like that. It's um, like you're saying remedial work. And it's like, look, I, I, I would love to just sometimes sit and talk about <clears throat> certain principles of the occult, particularly the ones where, where I am qualified to speak on, right? Being a, a, a senior member of particular initiatic orders. Um, I want to be able to sit and talk about those things. Uh, and instead I end up, like you're saying, doing this kind of remedial work where I'm, it becomes this kind of philosophy 101, this almost like uh, you know, class on, on more so on like the, the, the trivium or something. It's like, no, this is how you have to approach these things. The, the, you know, it, it, you have to be able to conceptualize these things outside of your postmodern lens, because it, there's a lot of assumptions there. It's kind of like you're saying, uh, you know, having all the information, but approaching it from this almost like secular humanism type of thing, not, not a tremendous effort uh, or emphasis on the hereafter, not a tremendous emphasis on, you know, the idea of, um, 
I, I would say a, a, a spiritual goal, whether that be the absolute or the holy guardian angel or the, the higher divine genius. It's just more so like uh, it's become commoditized. It's like money magic and things like that, that I'm seeing a lot of. And it's like, well, that, that's not what we do. You can do that. But like, that's not what I'm going to talk about in like a golden dawn lecture class, you know? Well, I, I think, you know, part of the problems arise again from how these organizations arose. And, you know, with Martinism, it was very organic in the beginning. You had three degrees and then a fourth and a fifth degree and a six degree grandmaster. And that was pretty much it. Um, and the fourth degree was much coveted because that made you an independent initiator and that meant you could start a lodge or heptad. And that was fine. And these different heptads kind of popped up like mushrooms because they worked off of a syllabus rather than written lessons. So the flavor of one lodge would be very different from another. Well, therein is a perfect example. The problem is that the continuity that you would say find in other and again, the joke I use is, in the beginning, everyone in Western esotericism, it's like they buy an IBM, you know, and then, and it's loaded and it, and it has all this Microsoft product on there and it's working okay, but then the patches come in and they get the patches and they're kind of okay with it. It's still working. It's chugging along. And then at some point they kind of get tired of the patches and the crashes and they decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to design my own. Mm. So I'm going to go open sourceware, right? And they, they're going to design their own. And that kind of sort of works. Some maybe have the skill for it. Most don't. And then they crap out. And then in the end, they all become used Mac users because everything's all there. Well, you know, what that is, that's why they all become Tibetan Buddhist because everything's there. It's all within it, everything they're looking for. And one of the things they're looking for, which they don't say openly, is some general manner of vetting the instructors. Mm -hmm. Some general manner of trusting the instruction and the instructors. So... What we have in Western esotericism is people start groups and they're the one in charge and they may not necessarily be, they're the most dedicated because they started the group, you know, God bless them. Right. But we've seen how that goes. Uh, what makes them now best qualified? So you're dealing with people who, whose, whose levels of experience in groups aren't that good. Mm. That's why we have the teacher training program at the Institute is because how often haven't we spoken to someone who they're in a group for a while, then they're asked to teach something. You know, it's not the same. It's not an intellectual teaching that you have to understand people's problems. When you come to occultism, your life is going to fall apart because that's its purpose. So if the people involved aren't qualified to deal with that, then they fall apart too. And the group does. And we can look at the original golden Dawn as a perfect example. It imploded because it had a lot of technique but it didn't have a sound philosophical view. And what's fascinating is it doesn't give you that philosophical view until like the, what is it? Seven equals four. 
the thing you should be getting at the very beginning, <laughs> they don't give to you till almost at the end. And in the philosophical view is how you perceive yourself and the cosmos. And that oath of the uh, adeptus exemptus is really the philosophical view, which is fundamental, say, in tantras, which they, they're they harping on from the very beginning because it takes so long to absorb it and, and begin to understand it. So within the Golden Dawn, we see the problems that arose from strictly book-learned people because there was no really other option. And then I read Regardi and I read the rituals, which is good, and I did them. And there were gaps in them, and I filled them into the best I could, and someone else did the same thing, and someone else did the same thing. They get together, they form a group, and then they argue with each other about who filled in the gaps better. So at the end of the day, how do we create viable lineages? And there's only one way. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of talent and it takes a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. There's no cheap or easy way to do it. None. Because the people who volunteer to do this, those who are often the most dedicated, may not be the best qualified. Or they're very qualified for one thing, but not another. And this goes into Freemasonry, something that's love and is dear to our heart. But I got to tell you, nothing can screw up uh, something better than a Freemason because they have this notion that the master of the lodge, which is a position of tremendous responsibility, anyone who hasn't done it, it is tremendous. They're not going to be good at everything. So what we end up with is the people who qualify to be master of the lodge aren't necessarily the people who are most qualified to run a small business, which is what a lodge is. A lodge is a small business that has, depending on where you live, anywhere from one to $3,000 a month in bills. Maybe more. Yeah. Okay, but that's the reality, guys. So those of you who are listening out there and want a group, you know, want a lodge, that's what it takes. So you have masters out there who have been very good at memorizing the ritual, but they don't know how to run an organization. Mm. And masonry has almost destroyed itself by focusing on memorization of ritual. Now, a hundred years ago or 50 years ago, the skill set for memorization was much higher. With the technology we've got now, we're destroying the capacity. Technology is destroying the capacity for initiatic work. I agree. So that means masonry has to, uh, and, and I've been a strong advocate of this, it has to adapt to the reality of saying, you know what? The watchmaster has to be the person who you have to decide what's most important. But you need to have someone who can run an organization and make organizational decisions and someone who can do ritual work. You have to decide which is most important. And you may need to have two people there. Or you made to do, you know, one of the things Amork did for initiations back in the day, I don't know if they still do, is you might have a ritual team. Hmm. 
and the ritual team, you know, did, you know, there you had nine degrees of initiation. So there's a lot of work. Uh, so you work, you have to find a working solution to the problem. And then when you move into other initiations, which are far more complex, such as those involved in Golden Dawn or Golden Dawn style lodges, then there's just other things that need to be addressed. Okay. But my point is, that's what you have to do if you want continuity of teaching and continuity of tradition intergenerationally so that we're not constantly reinventing the wheel because we're always one generation away from illiteracy. You know, we're always just one generation away from all of this just going away again. Yeah. Yeah. So if you believe in reincarnation, those of you listening, raise your hand. If you say believe in reincarnation, Okay, where do you think that's going to take place? Probably where you have the strongest attachments and emotional inclinations. So it'll probably be here. And what makes you believe that there's going to be any esoteric teachings for you to continue learning or studying if you don't make that happen? Right. So that's part of that bifurcation process. And that's why I believe that in many ways, it's going to get smaller and more restrictive and more selective rather than bigger. And that has weaknesses as well, but that's part of the essential process. Right. It's kind of this, it's kind of just the overall pattern, like you were saying earlier of, of, of cycles. Um, there has to be uh, this purgative period um, or a period of, of um um sort of collapsing in on itself you want to talk about like the tsum expansion and contraction it has to contract it has to come this way and particularly in freemasonry you know we're we're only maybe like one or two generations out from you know the post-war uh joiner generation where like i the the masonic lodge here um the uh scottish rite temple where we have all of our meetings uh i mean i i see pictures of, of the lodge room filled with like 200 men mm -hmm. all you know different ages all dressed to the nines and um i it, it like how did they even do ritual in this room uh whereas now we we do we have to have a ritual team there's seven of us that consistently put on the the degree work and stuff but th the thing is you know we are navigating these problems where it's like you know, Freemasons trying to, the younger guys trying to take back this, the onus of, of personal responsibility to the buildings, to, you know, the secretary's duty, to the, the, the bills, crazy bills in old buildings, man. You know, you got a boiler that's trying to heat four floors that was put in there in 1912. It's, it's a lot of money, you know, to even, to even revamp the, um, the heating and, and and central air system is a tremendous investment. So they're, they're struggling with, with these things and I, I see it happening, but it's part, I think of the lessons of, of, you know, working together, right. Using the trowel and, and, and um, beyond just this ritual setting and trying to figure out how do we keep our building? You know, how do we, you know, how do we keep it under our control, you know, rather than, let's say having a building manager or something like that is going to treat us like a bunch of little boys. So it's um, there's, there's definitely uh, 
that struggle that's happening here locally um, as well. But it's bringing us close together. And that for me, that's, that's really the part of that Freemasonry plays in my life is, um, is the, the camaraderie and, and the, uh, the brotherhood really in the, in the most literal sense that I did not find in any other spiritual organization. Um, I, I have not found it to the same degree. Well, you, you hit on it there. The bringing together of fraternity means common vision. And it's really nice to look around and say, you know, we did this. We, we kept this building. We, we revived it. We've turned it into a community focal point instead of just that strange building down the street. Uh, we've gotten our, ourselves back in a situation where there's things we've done which we can be proud of, which we've learned about the, ourselves and our capacities to solve problems in a very real sense which is really what esotericism is about. How do we step up to the challenges of life, not how do we retreat from them? And how do we do it in a, with others and in a broader sense? So this is where a lot of the esoteric groups collapse is that they don't have a good, and when I say good, I will say a healthy collective vision that directs them towards something higher so instead of working on creating a lodge that will be here for generations uh, they throw their weight into something which is simple and easy which is basically turning their golden dawn group or their wiccan group or their neo-pagan group or their zen group into a political action committee so uh you know, and that's terribly destructive because what happens then is failure to achieve the inner goals of awakening or failure to achieve other goals related to that path then are substituted with something, uh, you know, a moral grandstanding and what we call, uh, what is that, uh, virtue signaling. Yes. You know, it's kind of a moralizing and a grandstanding. And that has to be reduced and, and eliminated because that's been terribly destructive to the groups over the last few years. And, and groups that I don't have anything to do with, I don't really care about. Um, but I've seen the destruction that it's done to them and what they've done to their members and, and people who wouldn't be around. You know, the groups wouldn't exist if it wasn't some of their members. Right. You know, is this, is this, where, is this where I say, you know, like the OTO could just disappear right now and I wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. I think the world would be better for it because of the way they treated Jim Wasserman. Mm. That group wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him and his wife and many of the sacrifices he did. And and he was just treated poorly. I was informed that he he quietly left before his uh before he passed. And that wow. says a lot. That yeah. says a tremendous amount about just how dysfunctional that became. Uh, and he once asked me years ago if I why I never petitioned for membership. And this is when I had him here for uh, a presentation in which he gave. And several of his books he wrote later on, he mentioned us, mentioned me in, in particular as being responsible for the inspiration that forced his hand to write them. Um, he asked me why I never joined. And I jokingly said to him, it was because of the members. And, you know, I've met people within the organization that I like individually. 
But again, after what I saw they did to him, they could, they could just all go away and I wouldn't care. And yeah. I, I've been in groups that disintegrated. I was there in the early 90s when Amwork imploded. And that was ugly. That was real ugly. Um, yeah. So I, I've seen yeah. what happens. So the question then is, you know, how do you keep that from happening? How do you keep these flame wars from happening? And um, you have to have a just a better vision of why you're there, not just for yourself alone. Mm -hmm. If you're there for yourself alone, then when you have to do something for others, you're going to take the path of least resistance. And that's going to be, as I said, some kind of political action committee or what they call a mission creep. Well, we're going to support this shelter, you know, for dogs or homeless people or what have you. We're going to do this. That's going to be our community. That's not quite what it means. That can be helpful, but you don't need to be in that organization for, to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like in masonry. Masonry does a tremendous amount of, philo of philanthropic good. And it has a great deal of fraternity. What it lacks, generally speaking, is the philosophy. And it's not that it's not there. It just is ignored. Right. And, and, and I'll say to grandmasters, I've said to them directly, I've said to district deputies, look, I don't need to belong to this organization and go through all these rituals for either fraternity or charity. I can join a bowling league for fraternity and I can stroke a check for charity. You know, these rituals, you and I both know, and they, you know, have a deep esoteric meaning. I have a book over there on Eastern Star, and if you were to read it, the symbolism of the Eastern Star, you'd think this was some kind of uh, uh, borderline, uh, you know, tantric magical group. Wow. But they don't read the books anymore. Right. So we see this problem again. So in masonry, it's kind of not enough of the philosophy. And in some of these magical groups, it can be too much of the philosophy. And they get wrapped up in things that aren't helpful. Right. And those things which aren't helpful is often embedded in it. And, and, and not to not to beat up on the golden dawn, but I will because your, your listeners will understand what I'm talking about. There is too much emphasis on everything fitting together when it doesn't. Not everything fits in this fourfold pattern. Mm. You know, and and when you have to, not everyone is going to be good at tarot. You don't have to, to, to get enlightenment. You don't need to memorize all these meanings of the cards. You don't need to memorize all these complex uh, configurations of things. So it can be very helpful and useful because I've benefited very much from many of the fundamental print methods and rituals of the golden dawn. But it can be so layered on top of itself that it becomes cumbersome. Right. And then you only get people in there who are good with cumbersome stuff. Yes, absolutely. See, where having experienced Martinism, and you know a lot of golden nuggets, I'm going to be Martinist, you know, you see what can be done in three degrees. Right. Or uh, one fellow who told me about the, uh, what is it, the, uh, I'm thinking of the uh, Martinist. Pardon? Is it Martinist related? 
No, it's more of a Golden Dawn style offshoot. Uh, okay. Order, what is it? The order. Ah, uh, uh, they they changed names several times, unfortunately. But Llewellyn published their three books: the Magical Philosophy. This here. Magical oh yes, Philosophy. yes, yes. The uh, Orum Solus. Orum Solus. Orum Solus. And what is it? They couple names because of different problems they've had but the point is there you have three degrees and there's probably a secret fourth i have no doubt or maybe a secret fifth but at the end of the day it's what can you do with your minimum approach right because we don't have that goes back to the wealth aspect why you don't have a lot of golden dawn lodges is because you need a lot of space and people and money yeah so why you know why do you have more martinist lodges because you can do martinist rituals in a very small room with a, a, a few people in a living room I mean, right in a living room we've done them in mine but <laughs> yeah yeah so you uh, yeah well this is it you know we're talking as as friends here and people are yeah. eavesdropping in on our conversation yeah absolutely so we're, we're talking about the strengths and the weaknesses we've had and saying now how do we take this for those of you listening how do we move forward and create sustainable lineages and how do we train people to be teachers, not just think that somehow because you've made it through the degrees that you can teach others? Right. Yeah. I, I, um, that is a totally separate skill. Um, I, for mm. me, I had to learn how to like work with Tefereth. I'm a little bit more of a, of that Gebura type of um, tough love thing, but it's, it's definitely a separate skill, but it's, it's interesting because you have a, you have a teacher program. Well, I'll back up. You, you're the founder, obviously, and the director of studies for the Institute of Hermetic Studies, which uh, I had the pleasure of speaking for, at. For Hermetic Studies. Of is some other guy. <laughs> the Institute for Hermetic Studies. For Hermetic Studies, which uh, just had its 25th anniversary. And yeah. uh, I was very privileged to speak at that that conference. Um, and you you guys actually, you you have uh, an expansion over in Europe, right? That that news dropped, correct? Or that's correct. We have folks uh, in Europe and Vienna who are are helping to expand, and in Denmark, uh, in Germany, are helping to expand in Europe. We have translations of our monographs in Russian. We have translations coming out in German. So we're we're seeing people volunteering, and and that's what it takes: time, talent, and treasure. Talent means your skill set. Mm. People volunteer to make things happen, and well, uh, they're doing that. What's your vision for the future of IHS? Um, you know, as, assuming, uh, you know, assuming that it's going to continue to expand and, and obviously you are training a bunch of new, new teachers. Is, is that correct? I've seen, a, I've seen quite a few names on that. That's correct. Teacher training program list. Yeah. And, and to be honest, we tell them, uh, look, because people want to do it, but they don't know how much time it's going to take or what's going to be expected of them. And I say, look, we're not training you to be an emergency room surgeon. We're training you to be a paramedic. Mm. And these are the problems that you're going to encounter doing this work. And these are the problems people are going to encounter doing this work. These are the questions you're going to be asked. This is how you deal with it. So a lot of the time, we're not even focusing on how do you do ritual? Anybody can learn ritual. Look, artificial intelligence can teach you how to do ritual. It's called video. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's called it's called Israel Regardi uh on an old cassette <laughs> <laughs> that you listen to in his squeaky chair. Okay, so <laughs> the, the physical learning of the movements is 
secondary to the attitude that you bring to it. And you see that very often. And just again, we'll, we'll use the Golden Dawn as an example in the different ways people, you know, trace a pentagram or draw a pentagram. Yes. You know, some of them are very rigid about it, you know, mm-hmm. as if they're like, you know, etching and carving this, you know, into their enemy's chest. You know, <laughs> others are more flowing and graceful. Yeah. So, you know, what is the feeling that you're bringing to this? And what is the mental attitude that's happening? And then after it's all done and you've reabsorbed all this, what's going on within you and also the people outside? Because if you're doing it as a group, not everybody may be inside that circle. And you have to know that there's an experiential difference between being inside a ritual circle and being on the outside of it. You can think that's the case if you've done it by yourself, but you don't know it until you've done it in a group. Right. And years ago, quite a few years ago, more than I care to remember, uh, I did a ninth degree review class for the Johannes Kelpius Lodge up in Alston in Boston area for Amwork. And they, you know, couldn't really remember the last time anyone did this. And this is probably the single most significant and important degree in the organization in its whole teaching structure, for those of you who who care. And part of it is very similar. There's, there's this visualization of, of different spheres and circles. And what I did is I said, well, we're going to do this. But now those of you are on the outside need to know what it's what's really happening. You know, what is it like if you're on the outside of this? That's where you get the real experience in many regards. So they talk about visual, you know, and they meaning you know, ma- magicians and magic folk about you you visualizing the sphere, you visualizing the protective tent, they call it in, in, in Vajrayana. But until you've really been on the outside of one, you don't really know if it's real or not. Because there's no encounter, there's no contact, there's no friction. So that goes also into when we're teaching, how do you teach experimentally? Because experimentally is also experientially not just by rote. Uh, you know, a lot of people in magic in particular also have an interest in martial arts. Mm-hmm. There's a strong overlap. And one of the things you see in martial arts is um, they teach forms or kata. And how often haven't you been taught numerous katas? And you were never really told what they do. I mean, there might be some explanation, but not much. And then you'd say, well, okay, well then, if that's what the kata does, like what they'd say, well, kata is good for building fighting spirit. Well, there has to be more to it than that, because why are we keeping them around? The techniques are, there's some kind of memory file here of fighting techniques. What are they? And and show me how they're applied. And very often you didn't get that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's when you realized you were really studying under the single name in that school, three different martial arts. You were studying kata, which is kind of like a performance art. Mm-hmm. You were studying self-defense, which never had any relationship to kata. And then you were studying fighting, which really often didn't have any relationship to either of them. 
That's a good point. Yeah. That's so it's and, and that happens in occult practices as well, particularly around magic. Yeah. I, I had a I had interesting experience. Well, first my experiences were uh, I, I trained for I mean decades as a musician. So that's not something that you can just read about. The teacher calls on you and is like, okay, now play. And you get up there and you're like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it it requires that you there's a practical aspect. So that's something that thankfully I I kind of I learned to get those jitters out of my system. I learned to get that kind of that that um self-hesitation out of the way and just dive in and not care who's looking and 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 it really a lot of it is a lot of what I see in people not being able to get the ritual stuff is just nerves really um but yeah yeah, yeah. and then uh, the other piece is that yeah absolutely like you're saying the you know I was in the golden dawn for for many years before I uh, I joined martinism and then in martinism it's like when the two came together because martinism the first three degrees you get i mean the first degree you get a huge portion of the 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 magical and philosophical worldview um which and, is essential to move forward <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly otherwise you you're, you're just kind of it's like lugging around a chest without knowing what inside of it. <laughs> i'm gonna lug it around everywhere i have no clue what's in here <laughs> you know but, but, but one day they'll show me one day, <laughs> one day one day they'll open it up and i'll get to see the, yeah the, the corpse that i've been dragging around <laughs> Uh, so you and I and Jamie Paul Lamb were about to teach a six-week course on the three books of occult philosophy of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. So talk about uh, looking around a corpse. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and well more than one chest. There's, there's yeah, so true. much, to, so much to lug around. So how have you been? Uh, has the sort of your re-exposure to this material has it is there anything that that's coming to you sort of standing out as a through line in Agrippa's work I mean or at least so for people who who are listening uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar uh if you're not we're we're having the Institute for Hermetic uh, Studies <laughs> is is having a uh, a six-week course August 21st it's beginning on August 21st it's every Monday until September 25th um, I believe that's at 8 p.m. EST. Uh, and so the first book is going to be taught by myself. The second book will be taught by Jamie Paul M. And the third book, which is, I mean, you know, the piece de resistance <laughs> is going to be taught by yourself. Um, so in your, in your sort of, you know, retraversing the material, what, what jumps out at you? What, what do you, what are you seeing that, that kind of is important or overlooked maybe about Agrippa? Well, you know, as as many people know, many people uh, own Agrippa or they've read Agrippa, but they don't understand Agrippa. And the reasons for that are several. And, you know, for myself, when I prepared for this course, well, years ago when I when I first read Agrippa, uh, I got myself a uh, fairly inexpensive copy. And I sat there with a pencil and I annotated as I went. Because Agrippa tells you very clearly he's giving you everything you need to know, just not in the right order. Now, he pretty much gives it in the right order, but there are things that are reversed. And someone once said to me, if you after you've read books one through three, then you go back again and you read three to one. 
Huh. And that was uh, an interesting perspective and joke as well. And that's kind of my my half serious view on it. When you look at Agrippa and you see the first book of natural magic, which also includes what we think of as some of the sciences, by the way, mm-hmm. um, there's some really interesting stuff there. But a lot of it is also some things are just superstition or maybe foolishness, and you don't know what to make of it. Right. And then you get into the second book, which is what most people begin to think of as Agrippa. Oh, that's the astrological magic and all of this stuff, and, and we can make some sense of that. But the third book deals a great deal with just pure consciousness. Yeah. So, you know, the celestial realm. And and this is where, you know, magicians are often feared to tread. Um, we did a course which would be helpful for understanding some of this called the mind of Hermes. And it talks about the, the direct perception of reality because, you know, the, the initiatic journey begins with religion, as we stated earlier, and religion is uh, morals, mythology, meaning stories, educational stories, and uh, social conditioning. Okay. Keeps social harmony in order. And then there's the, the first real initiation, or, or actually true, first really esoteric inner, in a true strict sense, is religious mysticism. And, and we see this with the saints. You know, they, they develop a deep personal relationship with their understanding of God or Christ or deity, and they have these tremendous visionary experiences. And then some of them are in various levels they talk about the 10 levels or 10 you know uh, saint john of the cross and Teresa of Avila, you know which were probably they were probably uh, of jewish origin i think we've kind of pretty clear on that now and there was some kabbalah being implemented there but now we have what we think of as initiation you see we're already looking at the third thing as the first when we're kind of ignoring the first two religion and religious devotion or, or religious mysticism right So this third level, which we look at now as initiation, is now transformative. The first path is the the via negativia. Don't do this. Basically, stop from screwing your life up, making words, don't do this. And then the second one is the via positivia. Do this. Love God, love Jesus, love the saints. You see, love people. And then the, the third one is the path of transformation. You know, not avoiding things is only good for so much. Being nice was only good for so much. How do we take really difficult situations or feelings or experiences and transform them? And that's what we think of as Kabbalah and alchemy, ritual magic, all these things. What we don't talk a lot about is the fourth one, which is direct experience of reality as it is. Now, we use some vague terms like cosmic consciousness or cosmic awareness, or that kind of thing. But you know, we need to really realize that these four stages also have within them their own techniques and yet simultaneously any one of them will get you through all of them that is we've all known people who were just very devout religiously and they could have deep perceptions we've known people who were really practiced their mystical magical practices and then they no longer needed them you see, the schools, the occult schools are schools to train you 
but we've allowed their egregores to be turn them into a means an end in and of themselves rather than a means to an end. Yes. And the end is your own is your direct awakening. So you should be able to leave your group and five years later come back and be welcomed with open arms as long as you did we as long as you left on good terms. Right. So Agrippa takes us at the final book into this notion of what is this direct experience and how does it what are its various manifestations? Excellent. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely excited uh for this class. Particularly, you know, I'm just just in general, I'm I'm always interested to hear your insights, Jamie's insights. Um <clears throat> you know, uh just on you know a person to person note, <clears throat> I've read a lot of your stuff. You're a very prolific writer. Um and you know, I've not read all of it, but uh, the stuff that I have read, because I've, I've chosen to take my time and digest and practice, there's a tremendous amount of stuff in your work, specifically, where it's not just this kind of naval contemplation. It's like you're, you know, look, let's do something with this stuff. And I remember, actually, the first thing I had ever read of yours was I, I picked up um, <clears throat> the uh, the Philosopher's Stone by Regerty, and there's uh, a, an essay that you wrote on on operative alchemy in there. And you know, you read you read what Regerty has to say. You read all these, you know, the philosophizing and the references to Margaret Atwood and all this stuff. And and uh, and then finally, we get to this moment of clarity where you're delineating the principles of operative alchemy as they apply spiritually and to your consciousness as it's as as you're going through that and and that's when a, a light bulb um really turned on for me and um i'm very happy that we have you and people like you in this community still um you know not walking away you know not hiding your 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 gift uh under under a bushel um uh hiding the light and bringing it forward because there there is like you're saying People are drowning in information, and and we we need good, solid, info, information um, localized. Right? I, it's like you should be able to go to to one area and have a thorough training in whatever it is you're studying, instead of this kind of patchwork of of uh, interpretations. And what's what's more, I mean, even worse, interpolations. Just projecting what you want this symbol or this teaching to mean. But with that said, are, are you working on any other classes, literary projects? I mean, what have you got going on in the future, the near future or uh, somewhat distant future that you might want to tell people about? Well, you know, there's always projects going on and we don't discuss them until they're near fruition because it's like anything. You, you may have three irons in the fire and only one of them gets really hot. So always deal with your successes. <laughs> so uh with that said there's always something and we're focusing a tremendous amount of energy and resources into the teacher training program in fact i have several folks coming here tomorrow and i'm going to spend three or four hours with them uh in their in their individual areas of expertise and bringing them up to speed as best we can because if we don't take time out to train people there will be no one there in the future to train us and that means there's no tradition no lineage is nothing uh, and our goal is to change that, to keep it alive and well and adaptable within reason, you know, adaptation within reason. Uh, otherwise, it becomes something it's not, something completely different. 
But the Institute is very experientially oriented. It's practice oriented. So we recognize that there are several ways to get to that point of awakening. All of our work is focused on that. Let's be clear. What does this do for you in the here? What does it do for you in the hereafter? And what does that mean? It's defined as the creation of a focal point of consciousness, of self-awareness that can sustain the tremendous pressures of the point of naught from which we have come. Mm. Now, who's ever defined it for you before? Why you're going through all this? Yeah. Your, your purpose here in all the classical theurgy is to create for yourself a self-awareness that can, that can be sustained the tremendous pressures of the, of the non-being from which we've come. Otherwise, why do any of it? If you're just going to disintegrate and go back to nothingness as nothing, then why, why should we do any of this? You know, enlightenment doesn't mean you disappear. So we focus on that and say, and these are the, the methods which we understand and believe and have had enough experience to believe it will get you there. And these are the people who can help you. And these are the things you know because there be dragons all along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I couldn't be happier to be a part of at least some aspect of what you've got, you guys have got going on. Um, my, my last question for you this evening uh, is a canned question that I ask all my guests. Um, for anybody that's been listening to this conversation that we've had we've necessarily covered quite a bit of ground between freemasonry orthodoxy uh martinism etc for anybody that might have stumbled across uh some subjects that they wanted to learn more about could you recommend three books and that's the hard part is keeping them to three <laughs> um that were that you'd recommend to somebody um and caveat you can definitely recommend your own books so don't feel like you can't <laughs> Well, there's a joke there. People write to me all the time asking me to recommend books to them, and then they get upset when I recommend my own. <laughs> I say, why, do you think I, why do you think I wrote them? <laughs> I wrote them so you would read them. Yep. So I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> and I'm going to say the Between the Gates. Absolutely. If you don't do, read anyone, and there was a disaster, bringing that to publication was just a disaster. There were so many stories with involved in that. Um, I'd love to redo the book, but I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. So just as it is, it will still do what you need it to do if you work it. Between the Gates, The Mind of Hermes, which is one of our monographs. And I will recommend, well, it's a toss-up. I'd say Pathology of the Sublime, if you're interested in all the things that can go wrong on the journey, but also uh, Four Aims of Life, which is about the power of Jupiter in life. I th would recommend that to everyone to read, and I do, and I'm going to tell you why. That was our least attended seminar. Hmm. I want that to sink in. We did a yeah. seminar on how, what the, all, and this is all the beautiful things of Jupiter and how to, and that was the least attended. 
which is really what drove home to me this notion about these guys just being pilloried on the pillar of severity. Because Jupiter, especially those of you involved in classical theology, you realize Jupiter is where a lot of it's at. Mm -hmm. So, so much is there. And when you look at within the Golden Dawn system, that point, that seven equals four, so much comes together in that in that realization of those ideas and texts so really coming to understand the joys of life because you know we, we we get here we talk and we complain a little bit but you know we do it's because we love it we want things yeah. to be better and we, we we want those of you listening to know there are ways to make things better but it's just going to be work you just you're going to have to do it there's mm-hmm. no easy way that's why it's called the great work and within that framework the, those forces of jupiter are right there to help you and all you have to do is reach forward and embrace them the way Jupiter embraces life. You have to take on that assumption of the God form of Jupiter with full reckless abandon like Zeus does. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not some tempered, quiet little way like putting on a raincoat and taking it off. You have to fully embody the qualities. And that's when it gets scary because now suddenly the stuff works <laughs> yeah. and things yeah. and things begin to change. Oh no. And they've changed for the better. Now I really am responsible for my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mark Savage, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. And um, thank you for the conversation, man. Thank you for everything. Uh, I'm looking forward to everything that um, every iron that you have in the fire, I'm eagerly awaiting uh, some uh, something to come to fruition. So, and and you've always got something new for us and I appreciate it. So thank you so much. Hey, well, thanks for the invitation. It's always a joy to be recorded once again as being a curmudgeon, but <laughs> <laughs> it's the two of us though. No, now no, it's but, two of us. <laughs> but it's, we're telling you, you know, through this friction is fire and fire is heat and, you know, from that heat, there's lots of joy and happiness and there's a good things. We can, you can really make stuff happen for yourself and others and for your future too, so that there's a generation after you, two generations after you that have the capacity to learn and to teach and continue these things, which we hold so important and true to us, because in the end, that's, that's what it's about our ultimate awakening and how we're doing that. So, so thank you very much and sign up for the class guys sign up for the class it's going to be great yeah, absolutely